Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Our scripture today is Habakkuk 3, verses 1 through 19. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles as I read. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigenoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushion in affliction. The mountains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses and on your chariots of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and withered. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should, should not blossom, nor the fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the field yield no food, the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Well, good morning. good morning. I already know that I have confused everyone who is a regular attender here today by only doing two songs. Of course. <laughs> and I'll confuse you again afterwards because we'll do three afterwards instead. We're just going to flip the service order this morning. Um, 
And why? Because associate pastors are here to get in trouble for doing weird things. Right? <laughs> that's that's the, the goal in life. Anyways, please bow your head in prayer with me this morning. Uh, dear Lord, thank you for your word and for what it can teach us and what it does teach us each and every week that we hear from it. Please this morning give us ears to hear and a heart to listen for your word. Um, please, uh, whoever needs to hear our lesson today, help it to reach them. We're thankful for you and all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So it happened then, in the middle of the night, a farmer's outhouse fell over and slid down his muddy hill. It came out of nowhere. The next day, the farmer gathered his sons and asked them if any of them had pushed over the outhouse. None would fess up to the crime. The farmer began to tell them the story about George Washington cutting down his father's cherry tree in his father's orchard. Now, George Washington's father was upset by this, of course, and he came to George Washington and, and asked him if he did it, and he did appropriately fess up to the crime that he had made. And George Washington's father was so, uh, had so much respect for his honesty in that moment that he decided to forego punishment of his son. So thinking about this story, the farmer's son bowed his head and admitted, it was I that pushed over the outhouse dead. So the father began to undo his belt to spank his son. And his son's like, Dad, what about the story about George Washington? I thought he was let go for telling the truth. And his father says, yes, but George Washington's dad wasn't in the cherry tree when he knocked it down. <laughs> so many of you today are probably also thinking, why are, we pre why, why are we doing the third chapter of Habakkuk when we haven't even started this book yet? And, well, Don's in the middle, middle, middle of 1 John, so when I get to fill in, I kind of just get to pick and choose things, uh, unless he gives me a passage in his series, which is also cool. But, so I have two reasons for this, and I'm sure if I really thought, I could come up with some more. But my first reason is one of my favorite verses of all Scripture lies here at the end of Habakkuk 3. And then the second reason is I just think the message of Habakkuk is incredibly relevant to us at this time in our lives. So to explain my second reasoning, I'll give a brief-ish overview of Habakkuk, because we are jumping into the third chapter. Um, to explain, or to, to start with, right, we're not given a really clear time frame of when Habakkuk was written. Like we're, we can't nail it down to a year. Uh, but we know it has to be before the Babylonian rule, since that's kind of what's being prophesied as them taking over. Um, and so it's likely kind of during the reign of King Josiah. Now, Josiah was a pretty decent king. Uh, but before Josiah, there is a, you know, a string of bad kings in, in Judah. Uh, and Judah had become kind of morally bankrupt. They were sacrificing their children to Molech. They were worshiping Baal in the high places, and the temple had fallen into ruin. However, during Josiah's time as king, uh, Judah does experience some revival as he works on repairing the temple. He reinstitutes the Passover. But, of course, after his death, Judah would quickly return to their old ways. 
Now, at the time, Assyria had had rule over the northern tribes of Israel, the kingdom split, for well over a hundred years at this point. And they had tried to siege Jerusalem, but they never took over Judah. But the Assyrians were starting to weaken, and Babylon was the new rising power in the ancient Near East. So, so some interesting things about the book of Habakkuk is that he never actually like accuses Israel of anything, and he never speaks uh, to Israel for God. There's no, thus saith the Lord in the, in the book of Habakkuk. His book is really all about Habakkuk personally addressing God. So he begins in chapter 1, if you want to flip with me real quick, uh, by crying out to God about all the evil that is currently happening in Judah. And this is chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, or through 4. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Why isn't God responding to the violence that's happening? It seems to Habakkuk as if God's law is paralyzed, and no one's upholding it or following it. And there's no justice for the righteous, and the remnant are all surrounded by the wicked. So, does this sentiment seem familiar to us at all? I feel like we could be crying out and saying the same things with what we see going on in our world today. But this is Habakkuk's opening lament. And the Lord responds by saying, I am working in ways you don't see. I am raising up the Chaldeans and the Babylonians to overcome the wicked among you. But Habakkuk doesn't seem quite swayed by this argument. And he's kind of cries out again, asking, how are you, a holy God, going to raise up an even more wicked nation to punish those more righteous than it? And God responds in chapter 2 uh, by saying, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So that while he is using the Babylonians to punish Judah for their unfaithfulness, the Babylonians themselves will fall. They're not being set up as a new nation of God's chosen people. Then there proceeds to be five woes expressed against them. The woe against the extortioner, the greedy and the arrogant, the violent, the drunkards, and the idolaters. In essence, Habakkuk is struggling to believe that God is good when there's so much evil going on in the world. And as I read through Habakkuk, I feel like I am reading through some of the cries I've heard from myself and other Christians in the past couple of years. Why is this happening? Why is God allowing Russia to invade Ukraine? Why is this pandemic still not completely over? Right. Habakkuk likely felt a bit like the farmer's son in our story this morning, feeling that Judah's punishment was too severe and wondering how a just God could lift up these wicked nations. Yeah, they and Judah definitely had their problems, but the Babylonians were so, so much worse. So, how many of us have felt these or similar struggles? How hard is it for us to trust in God and we see evil happening in our world? Russia invading Ukraine, thoughts of China taking over Taiwan, a pandemic that's still going on after 
well, two years at this point, um, how are we seeing God's justice in all of this? But Habakkuk, in his third chapter, comes to realize some things about God that we can learn from. So his first one for us is to remember what God has done in the past for us. If you'll look at with me uh, to verses 3 through 7 of chapter 3. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. So we're to remember what God has done in the past to remind ourselves that he will continue to be faithful in the same ways in the future. So... Habakkuk, having spent two chapters complaining to God and God responding to his complaints, his response is for his third chapter to be a psalm. So, like, you could almost just slap this in Psalm 151 if you wanted. Um, well, we don't quite do that. But his psalm looks back at how God has made himself manifest in the past, but also he eagerly awaits for his return in the future. And so throughout this chapter... We see Habakkuk refer to God using three different names. Eloah in verse 3, which is an ancient poetic name for God. And then in verse 8, he changes God's name to Yahweh, looking back at um, God and his covenants as he revealed himself to Moses at the burning bushes, Yahweh. And then in the final verse of this chapter, he refers to God as Yahweh Adonai is to express his subordination to the lordship of God who has remained faithful to his covenants. Now for Habakkuk, Habakkuk, he is looking back at the Lord appearing before Moses with some of this imagery he shows us. Um, And we get to look back at these same stories, but we are also fortunate enough to be, you know, 2,500 years in the future of Habakkuk that we get to look back at Christ as well. Um, he didn't have that luxury in his point, at his point. Um, so, right, in the last month, six months, two years, how much have we felt that God has abandoned us? And how do we overcome that feeling? Well, just like when someone has, we loved has wronged us, despite the fact that God has not wronged us, it just might feel that way sometimes. It helps for us to look back and remember how they have been faithful in the midst of our anger. This this works for any relationship, but certainly we should do it with God as well. Like Habakkuk, we can look back at how God has been faithful. How he brought his people out of captivity in in Egypt and into the new land. So this is what verse 3 is all about. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Taman and Paran roughly outline the wanderings of the Jewish people in the desert during the Exodus. We can look back to Daniel when he protects Daniel in the lion's den or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fire. He also came in the line of David to pay for the penalty of our sins. 
God has remained faithful to his promises, and, will con- and he will continue to do so. Um, our, our big benefit over Habakkuk is we got to see all of the old covenant promises get to be fulfilled in Christ. He hadn't got to, gotten to see the fulfillment of that yet. Because of that, we can also trust that the new covenant promises will also be held to. So even though we falter and stumble, God is perfect in all of his ways. He does not fall. He does not stumble. He remembers and he fulfills his promises. In verse 5, Habakkuk brings up pestilence and plagues. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Showing that God has used these things in the past as part of his judgment. Right? Two plagues in scripture we can think of is um, in Egypt. Looking back at the Exodus again, right? There's ten plagues that precede the Exodus. And then there's also a bunch of prophecies of plague in the book of Jeremiah. But what we do know is even through all of this, God continues to leave a, a remnant of his chosen people. Even today in the church, right, we see the gospel and God's word being twisted and perverted. We watch on as the prosperity gospel and progressive Christianity flourishes. We see that even Christians in conservative evangelical churches like ours have become accepting of doctrine that once would have been considered appalling 10 years ago. And then we wonder, how does the church so impotent in such a broken world. It's just like the Jews in the time of Habakkuk. It isn't simply because we're like the world. It's because some people today who identify as Christians, whether or not they truly are Christ followers, are actually worse than the world. Right? They're committing and more accepting of sin and sexual immorality. They promote injustice and they twist the gospel. But through all of that, God still leaves a remnant. And then finally in verse 6, the Lord appears and stands over his creation. This is verse 6. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. God, who we know created everything, is alone in his ability to measure everything and his ability to shake the nations. As we know, he has done and continues to shake the nations. Assyria rose up to conquer the northern kingdoms, just as God had told Habakkuk, Babylon will rise up to conquer Judah. Just as today, nations still rise up and conquer other nations. We don't understand why it happens, but God does. And just as these unjust nations rise up and act out God's punishment on others, so do those unjust nations eventually see their own punishment, eventually. Because as Habakkuk puts it, the nations will shake. The mountains are scattered by his word, and the hills bow down before him. Because he is sovereign, and his ways are everlasting. He is everlasting. So in the middle of his psalm, Habakkuk turns from remembering what the Lord has already done to seeing and waiting on the future salvation of God's people. He's using the past actions of God to see what his future actions may be. So our second thing is we get to look ahead to Christ's return. Now in verse 8, Habakkuk writes, 
Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation. What does it mean for God to show his wrath on the rivers? Well, as we see so much in the world, this was true in the ancient world, and it's true today that many of the borders for our states and countries are based on rivers. We just look at Iowa, for instance, right? Our western, this is your west, if you're looking at me, and eastern borders are determined by the Missouri and the Mississippi rivers, right? God is sovereign even over how the borders of countries are formed because he created that in eternity's past. And in the past, God has shown his power through controlling water, right? He split the Red Sea during the Exodus, and he stopped the Jordan so they could come into the land of Canaan. And in the future, at the end of the age, we'll continue to see this power manifested again, as is proclaimed in Revelation, that the Euphrates would be dried up and the springs of water would turn to blood. Habakkuk is blending the idea of salvation and judgment, showing us that even in these terrible events, the Lord is continuing to advance his redemptive purposes. The things that God does out of wrath, the splitting of seas, the drying up of riverbeds, riding on his chariot, he does for the redemption of his people. In verse 13, we see exactly what God has come to do. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. The Lord comes, and he comes to save his people. He also comes to crush the wicked. Sometimes, as we see in Habakkuk, and maybe even as we see with, say, Russia and Ukraine, he uses the wicked to crush the wicked. Are we able to look at our current crises like that? Is there any good that's come out of two years of a pandemic? When I think about the church and maybe the pandemic's effect on the church, I wonder if maybe there's been a purifying effect. Um, those who were only culturally Christian, but not actually true followers of Christ, have probably fallen away over the last two years. Right? The pandemic gave an easy out to not be here anymore. That's not to say that watching online makes someone fit into this category. I'm talking about people who have stepped away altogether. So, are we able to look and see what kind of work God is doing in Ukraine? It's hard for us to see all the workings that God is doing. But, I think of this scripture in, back in Genesis. So in chapter 50, right, Joseph has just, um, well, Joseph first is sold into slavery, and then, you know, then gets thrown into jail, then he makes it to the second in command of Egypt, and God uses his position to save his brothers who sold him in here and his father. And in chapter 50, his father is passed and his brothers are worried that maybe he's going to take revenge on them. And so Joseph tells them as they're, they're worried what he's going to do. He goes, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So we struggle to understand evil in the world. But God uses this evil, and he means it for good. 
And I don't know about you, but I've read to the end of Revelation, and the truth is that God wins. We know that Satan doesn't win at the end of the day, but God does. And we can trust that he is going to continue to provide what we need and that he will continue to remain faithful to his promises because he always has. Nothing in this world happens without his sovereign hand over it. And just like Habakkuk, we need to put our memories of God's faithfulness in the past to comfort us for the future. He brought his people out of Egypt. He did send Israel into captivity because of their idolatry, but he also sent his son as a savior. And because he held to his promise to do that, we can trust that he will again send his son for us. Luckily for us, we have a God who is perfect, and he does wield that perfect control over everything. We have incredible faults, but he doesn't. And so there's about 15 quintillion reasons why we're not God. So as we remember the past so that we can trust that God will continue to be faithful in the future, what do we do in our present moment now? So we worship him even when it's hard for us to do so. Uh, I'm going to read verses 17 through 19. These are, this is the passage that is some of my favorite in all of scripture. Though the fig trees should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So in the midst of his worry about Babylonian captivity, about the struggles that will happen in Judah, what is Habakkuk called to do? He is called to rejoice in God and to praise him for what he has done. As we read verse 17, it's easy to assume that this is a hypothetical situation that could transpire, but by the nature of being you know, a prophet, these are events that I think did happen. Uh, maybe not as he wrote this, but this is something that did happen in their future. Um, and it simply won't be the result of drought, but it's going to be a result of war desolating the land. So Habakkuk lists these items that will be lost in order of least to most important. Though the fig tree should not blossom. Figs were a delicacy, and while their loss would be sad, just like if I lost pizza and chocolate, my life would be a lot more sad. Um, it wouldn't really cause any hardships. I mean, I might be the one person that would die because pizza didn't exist anymore, but that wouldn't be an issue for anyone else. Nor fruit beyond the vines. Greatness is a little bit more important than figs. Grapes are needed for wine, and wine would have been a daily drink for them. Um, but once again, like, they can still boil water. They can still have clean water. Um, that's not going to severely affect the people, maybe make their lives a little bit uh, more inconvenient. The, produ uh, nor f yep. the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. Now, olives were extremely important, uh, needed, you know, used for oil for cooking and for lighting their lamps. And the grain produced, obviously, being the basis of their food in Judah. 
this alone would have led to starvation and a lot of people would have died. But then the most important part, the flock be cut off from the field and there be no herd in the stalls. Livestock would have been the greatest sign of wealth in Judah. Sheep and goats obviously would be providing wool and meat. While they didn't typically eat cattle, there's still obviously good uses of milk and also they were used for heavy labor in the fields. But each one of these losses individually, the population could have sustained. But the loss of all of them would be an absolute economic collapse. Right? I think we're all already complaining about inflation that we're experiencing. Every time I fill up gas, I know I am. But what if we actually lost all of the means to produce what we're buying amidst that inflation? Right? That's what Judah's facing. They're not just... It's not just rising prices. It's losing their means for their entire economy. But we can't just read the struggles of verse 17 without mentioning how Habakkuk will respond in verse 18. So, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Even though his people will be killed, they will be in captivity. They will suffer economic collapse. They will lose all that they hold dear. Habakkuk will still find reasons to rejoice in the Lord. He will take joy in the God of his salvation. And why? Because the struggles of our life here now are temporary. For those who are in Christ, we have all of eternity to look forward to. We as Christians still need to be able to turn and rejoice in the Lord of our salvation now, while the plague continues on, while war and threats of war abound, while the economy is collapsing. These are all products of the world we live in. And God is sovereign over all of it, and he works out all things for the for the good of those who trust in him. I'm going to read a couple of passages. This first one from Deuteronomy, which is chapter 8, verse 3. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And in Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8, but whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. We continue on by trusting in the Lord, living on his word. We continue to praise him even when it's hard because that's what real faith is. This is where the prosperity gospel fails. We don't simply play, praise God when he blesses us, when we're living our best life now. We praise him when he strips everything away from us. Um, so this is a story of my church growing up. When the youth group was returning home from a ski trip in Colorado, the bus hit a patch of black ice and fishtailed off of the road. 
multiple students and the driver killed almost everyone else on the bus severely injured. But here's what the student's response was in that moment as they awaited for emergency vehicles to arrive. They gathered together and they sang, Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. That's what true faith is, even in that moment of watching. You know, they know some of their friends are dead. They know that so many others are severely injured. They are likely severely injured themselves. But that is the faith they had in their God in their moment of weakness. So this morning, we're going to sing my favorite hymn. It is well, and the story of that hymn fits perfectly with this passage. If you don't know the story, I'll share it with you. Horatio Spafford was a successful lawyer and businessman in Chicago. He had a wife, Anna, and five children. In 1871, he lost his only son to pneumonia, and his business was lost in the Great Chicago Fire. In 1873, his wife and their four daughters were on board the French ship Ville du Har, crossing the Atlantic Ocean. Horatio intended on joining them on board the ship, but at the last minute he had to stay back because of some business dealings that needed his immediate attention. Four days into the trip, the ship collided with another and sank quickly, taking the lives of all four of the remaining Spafford children. His wife, Anna, managed to survive long enough to be picked up by a boat and eventually another ship and made it to Europe. She sent her husband a telegram saying, saved alone, what shall I do? So Horatio boarded the next ship he could to meet his grieving wife in Europe. And on the journey, as he passed over where he lost his four remaining children, he wrote the words to it as well. I'm just going to read the first verse for us. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Please bow your head in prayer with me. Lord, we're so thankful for you and everything that you have done for us. Help us as we continue about in our week, in our lives, to remember that we can trust in you at all times. That you have been faithful to your promises. You will continue to be faithful to your promises, and we can, we can look back on that and be thankful for you, and we can look to the future about how you will hold to your promises you have and that you will send Christ again for us and he will come in victory. We're thankful for you and all that you've done for us. Help us as we continue on to be able to rejoice in you even when it seems like everything is falling apart. We love you and we're thankful for what you've done. In Jesus' name.